Hey everyone, welcome to Office Hours with Cloud Posse, your weekly dose of insider DevOps trends, AWS news, and Terraform insights, all sourced from our community, plus a live Q&A that you can't find anywhere else. It's November 1st, 2023. I'm your host, Eric Osterman. Real quick, I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. We are a DevOps accelerator for startups that helps teams who are overwhelmed with AWS. We do this by using our library of over 200 Terraform modules that have been battle-tested and downloaded over 10 million times. No matter where you find yourself on this journey, we're here to help your startup launch better products faster, free up your bandwidth for innovation, and nail your value delivery every time. And if you or your team has been banging your head against the wall with underperforming infrastructure, just head over to cloudposse.com quiz, answer a few quick questions, and we'll chart a roadmap for success free. Worst case, you get a clear roadmap for shoring up your infrastructure. Best case, we co-build it with you, empower your DevOps team in 90 days or less. Now, how can you maximize today's session? First off, our format is very informal. Engage as much as you'd like, uh, ask questions. And if you're curious about any of our open source tools or modules, go for it. For those on the recording, we host these calls live. So don't miss out. Join us live by going to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, cloudposse.com slash office hours. Now I have one ask. If you find any portion of today's office hours valuable, share it with your team. Just head over to youtube.com slash cloud posse to find the video, or maybe share a short testimonial about the value you're getting. Do that by uh, joining our Slack team and posting something in the office hours channel. Remember, we're not simply creating content here. We are trying to build a community of helpful people. So with that, Let's get started and join and uh, go into our announcements. All right. Uh, first one is some pretty serious uh, vulnerabilities were uncovered in the uh, Nginx ingress controller for Kubernetes. Uh, this is this used to be like the de facto ingress controller. Uh, these days, if you're on AWS, you're probably using something else. Um, but this uh, this doesn't sound very good. <laughs> Uh, an annotation injection causes arbitrary command execution um, and other code injection possibilities via permanent redirection. So make sure you upgrade your ingress controller. Uh, another one here, this one uh, struck close to heart. Thank you, Masterpoint and Matt Gowie for putting this post together. Um, this is a very long, very thorough post on a Cloud Posse Terraform module uh, that we that is integral to our whole solution um, for Terraform. The module in question is called Terraform Null Label, um, and it's what we use to generate consistent resource names in AWS or on whatever cloud we use uh, with Terraform. Uh, one of the most common problems you'll notice with um, open source uh, or in in-house homegrown Terraform code is a large inconsistency in how resources are provisioned. You'll see something that will say like prod, you know, prod VPC or, you know, uh, VPC dash prod all capital uh, dash two. And other times something, um, you know, most of the time those resource names are missing sufficient information to disambiguate them from other resources um, or doing so in an inconsistent way. They prevent you sometimes from deploying a Terraform module multiple times in the same 
AWS account or within the same project, you, uh, you end up with normalization errors. So some things are capitalized, some things are underscore, some things are um, hyphenated, et cetera. And I don't know, it just gets me on the OCD thing. So I don't know, like five, six years ago, uh, we were bothered by this and we wanted to put a stop to it. We wanted to make sure that our cloud posse modules could be deployed any number of times within the same account context and that we could do those changes to how resources names are formatted just using feature flags or you know uh, module inputs rather than changing the underlying module itself. So this is really powerful because you can um, you can change the way your resource names look based on your preferences just using a Terraform module. The other thing that the uh, null label module and this is the module in question here does, which is really nice, is it introduces this concept of a context. And we use this context similar to how in earlier versions of JavaScript, you used to pass the context along to function calls, similar to how in Perl, you would pass um, an object around as the first argument to function calls. And that's how object-oriented uh, programming was kind of emulated in Perl. Well, obviously you're limited in Terraform. You can't replicate exactly all that, but we are using the context variable, the context in a similar way in Terraform. So by embedding the context, this module, this code, this, um, what we call a mix-in into all of our modules, we can very efficiently um, inherit settings and come up with as many labels as we need. And we can pass that context to other modules and so forth. So an example of that would maybe be, uh, I think our subnet module is one of the good ones. So first we import the mix-in for the context um, a definition. This is literally copied verbatim into every one of our modules. And this ensures that we have a common interface for all of our modules, common set of parameters. And then when we uh, define some kind of an instance, uh, we'll call the module, we'll call the uh, label module and we'll pass it in our current context and then add any other metadata we have or override any of the attributes we need to override. And then we get a new label. So it takes the thought process out entirely of creating resource names wherever you're deploying this. And this is not AWS specific. This will work on whether you're using like Akamai, Azure, GCP, Kubernetes, AWS, et cetera. Um, and uh, if you call other modules, those modules can use that same pattern as well. So everything you provision has a consistent naming convention and good luck getting that from most other Terraform modules out there. Any questions on null label? I had one quick question, just dropped it in the chat. Is there any logic in the module for name length limitations? Yes, uh, actually we do have um, parameters for that with the null label. Um, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly what those are, but we do support that. And I believe we support different ways of truncating it so that it can truncate it, but also add like a short, um, uh, checksum at the end or small hash at the end. So you still get a unique name, um, but that is truncated. Uh, one quick question. Um, 
the incorporation of say uh, namespacing in tag names this would be theoretically where this would be handled um so one of the things that null label does that i didn't really touch on i think the post goes into it um okay, the one sorry. Here by mac Dowie, is also managing your tags oops is also managing your tags um is so it so first of all we have the concept of a namespace built into the module but then that's also exported as a tag map so you can pass that to your resources so they get a a, a list of appropriate tags so there's a cute there's a few things that have come out uh most recently uh in terraform one is like default tags or something and then there's other people who've come out with tools um i I forget the company that came out with a tool that helps you inject tags into all your Terraform code. Both of those to me are anti-patterns and symptomatic of not doing your Terraform code the right way from the beginning. And sure, those are great if you inherited a pile of Terraform code and you don't wanna touch that, I get it. I wouldn't wanna do that either. But if you're starting from scratch, you should just be generating proper labels and tags by convention and you do that using Terraform null label. So with Terraform null label, you can establish all the tags you want on your infrastructure and you can pass those in the context. So every other module that you invoke also sets its tags. So everything is appropriately tagged based on the context that's deployed. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, our null label has uh, some opinionated labels. Uh, we are, it's on our roadmap to get that fixed um, so that you can define your context that makes sense for your organization. Because what's made sense for Cloud Posse, you know, for five years or whatever plus might not jive with how you think of it. And that's fine. We want to make it so that our opinionated uh, labels don't intrude. Um, no ETA yet on that, but that is forthcoming um, for no label. Let's see in the chat here. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that y'all did a good job with that and making it not opinionated. Like it's very customizable. Yeah. The The thing that is opinionated is the names of those label ID elements. Right. And that's that's what rubs people the wrong way, I think. But like, yeah. just get over it. You know, it's- Especially um, these two. These are the most controversial yeah, there. <laughs> people don't like that, but you know, yeah. it is what it is. Um, yeah. this is a very customizable thing. That's why I've always loved it. And, you know, we were happy to write the blog post because just getting the word out that this is like how you should, you know, name and tag things in Terraform. Um, because it's, it's sad to see, you know, the random module that you pick up from another organization outside of cloud posse and they have no consistency and it's, and it's pervasive across everything and y'all have solved it. So anyway, that's why we did it. Um, Kudos to you to to you folks uh, for solving hard problems a long time ago. I appreciate it. Um, all right. Um, yeah, like so in terms of customization, other things like you can even customize, you can customize the order in which we concatenate them. So the label order. Uh, so if you if you don't like our default, you can change that. 
And then you can set that as a global in your modules and then everything else just inherits that uh, from then on. You can uh, customize how things are, you know, that you force them to be lowercase, you force them to be title case or uppercase altogether. So depending on what you're trying to do, sometimes you might want all uppercase uh, variable names. If you omit any of them, if you omit any of um, the parameters, they're just squashed, they're just ignored. So they're not required. You don't have to use namespace if namespace doesn't make sense for you. All right. Um, so yeah, thanks Matt Gowie for that shout out. Um, if anybody's looking for awesome Terraform consultants, uh, hit up Matt Gowie. <laughs> um, all right, so next one here is um, something that Mr. Jenkins shared. Um, I don't know if it was six months ago or a year ago, a controversial post came out about how overpriced cloud was. I don't know how universally well-received that was. I know there was a lot of valid criticisms about it. Um, well, David's doubling down on that. Um, and dollar for dollar as a business owner, I can totally see where he's coming from, that this made total financial sense. I do think it's still a fair oversimplification of the value you're getting from a managed cloud. But hey, dollars are dollars. And if you need to cut costs, then maybe this is a consideration. So he breaks down, for example, how much they were spending for open search on AWS for, uh, at 43,000 a month. And now their fully amortized cost you know, with appreciation would be about $2,500 a month. So that's a sharp yeah. premium. I, you know, I, I think I said this when the original yeah. article came out, but I'm going to say it again that um, there is no way that they're running this. That like he's actually looking at if you read it right there, power yeah. space networking to operate these machines. Yeah. But what about the entire team that they need yeah. to run this infrastructure, twenty four by seven, three sixty five, yeah. and yeah you know, do all this other stuff, right? And also, totally where's the comparison. amortized yeah. hardware cost in there? That's not taken yeah. into account either. Um, so they're they're basically like, you know, um, fudging the numbers to make it look a lot better than there really is. I think, um, I think at the end of the day, they're going to see that they don't, they're not saving nearly as much as they think they're saving. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much more that goes into it. Um, they even insurance their own deployment mechanism, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it's, it's like their alternative to Kubernetes that's supposed to be on prem, bare metal friendly, and like local laptop. Actually, I take that last comment back. I'm not sure about that, but it's supposed to be their Kubernetes alternative. So they've spent a decent amount, not just on migrating to bare metal on prem, but they've also essentially built software to do that, which I imagine yeah. has its own costs. Yeah. Yeah. And and then they claim if you read in the paragraph, like I think, yeah, two two paragraphs down from where you are you're highlighted, they they're basically saying that they haven't hired anyone. They they fully moved off of the cloud and haven't hired anyone. And I I call complete bull bull on that one. <laughs> so um I just don't see how it would be possible that they could run a physical infrastructure the size of what would be required to run Basecamp and Hay um, 24 seven 
without without a dedicated staff to do that. Like if it isn't, if that's not the case, then they completely they completely are burning out their team, or they're being less productive in in writing software or something. I mean, they're squeezing a balloon at some point. Like, so it's kind of a BS like comparison in my, uh, in, in my opinion. And they're also running rails for sure for both of those applications. So they, and this is a, Hey, for better or worse, like rails is a monolith and you know, it's, it's easy to probably just scale the hell out of it. Um, but they're not dealing with a complex architecture application architecture. Um, like you couldn't, you couldn't be, um, DoorDash and run, you know, have, have a really event-based, like microservice-based architecture that, you know, works at scale and do something like this and think, oh, this is going to be so much cheaper. I think that yeah, I agree with you, Matt, but I also think that this is very specific to like the tech stack that they've chosen, which is works kind of probably well or better than a lot of other tech stacks. Um, and it's a good thing for for Rails, which they're behind, but uh, it also is, uh, you know, not what everybody's on uh, and, and there's that to account for as well. Yeah. I, I would also be really interested to see how they're doing capacity planning, staying ahead of their customers, unless their business is just completely like withered at this point, which may be the case and, and stagnant and that kind of thing. But the I just don't understand how, you know, how they can be planning it that easily, like to do that kind of thing. So I don't know. So one thing that I don't know if it's in this article, but my understanding is they haven't done the storage migration yet. That's still an S3. So I think they were supposed to follow up on their storage solution or maybe that's it right there. Yeah. It also seems like they're able to leverage uh, remote hands to do some of the physical stuff. I don't know to what extent that is. Yeah, where's the bill for that? <laughs> oh, so Kamal is the thing they wrote. Yep, that's it. Yeah. No, okay, here. Tests updated recently sometimes. Okay. Anything else to add to this? Has anyone um, used Kamal yet? Yeah. Even like kicked the tires or just played with it. I'm curious what uh, what their load balancer strategy is. Because you know, uh cloud load balancers are and target groups, things like this enable you know, that kind of flexibility that you get with dynamic workloads or dynamic uh, clusters. Mm -hmm. uh, is there is there a for Kamal or for traffic, traffic. which is a pretty uh, powerful load balancer, very programmable, nice APIs. <laughs> That's my kid. 
<laughs> Your kid doesn't believe it either. <laughs> All right. Uh, next announcement was um, looks like the serverless framework is kind of going the ways of like what Docker has done, um, requiring a license uh, for companies with more than two million in annual revenue. Um, I, I, serverless used to come up all the time and I used to hear good things these days. I hear very little about serverless. I hear more about, uh, like, I mean, it's probably my echo chamber being on Amazon, uh, companies using, uh, Sam, uh, instead. Yeah. I think the, the Sam first class support for basically building anything you want in cloud formation, um, in Sam templates and the, the experience that they've added to that has made Sam a much more viable solution than it used to be. And I think that, um, you know, I think that the people have just started to say, well, if Amazon's supporting it out of the box, why don't we just, you know, adopt it? Um, and I think a lot of the things that used to be like plugins and serverless are now um, available kind of natively um, as like first class um, support in in Sam, so I think that like a lot of those plugins, which used to be the the main like argument why you would use serverless, um, aren't as uh, you know aren't as relevant anymore. Yeah. When I saw this, when I same thing I thought was um, the variable pricing and self reporting would make it difficult for serverless to actually get people to pay for it. And if it came to the point of paying for it, like you were saying, Matt, people will say, well, uh, let's just drop serverless and go to Sam. You know, so it could be a, a, a slippery slope either way. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Craig uh, Caliph brought up a good point. This is taking a step back to the previous thing we were talking about um, with going to bare metal or on-prem how Oxide Computer is building a business on the premise that there'll be more orgs who want or can do this. Um, I think it's more, a little bit more nuanced. I think that's true, but I think it's also a little bit more nuanced than this. Also, I mean, bare metal is not going away. And for the companies who are doing that, can't they get a better experience as well? In addition to people who are fed up with cloud and going back to bare metal. Uh, I'm guessing people going back to bare metal will have higher expectations of a cloud-like experience, and then I could totally see Oxide capturing their business easier. All right, next announcement. Uh, it's a minor announcement. If you're on our uh, Slack team, uh, SweetOps, uh, we added um, an open Tofu channel. Uh, we haven't yet added the uh, release note or the, the release feeds uh, for open Tofu there. But uh, in order to foster communication around adopting, moving to, or using Open Tofu, we started that channel. More to come. Lastly, 1.6.3 of Terraform, HashiCorp Terraform just dropped, um, added a minor um, tweak to skip uh, S3 checksums. Um, and if I recall correctly, I think this is also beneficial if you are uh, doing HA S3 
uh, and DynamoDB, uh, global DynamoDB tables for uh, to to replicate your your Terraform state. Um, the checksums include the bucket name, and since bucket names can't be repeated across regions, you necessarily have two different bucket names, and therefore necessarily your checksums are different and don't work if you're trying to set that up. So maybe this is a, a you know a good feature for that. I think the description describes this as something to make it more compatible with um, non Amazon S3 backends, so S3 compatible backends, um, things like, um, yeah, uh, what's it called? The self-hosted S3 uh, that's popular on-prem. Yeah, I can't think of the name of it either. Cool. And well, that's the end of my announcements, um, Matt. Anything stand out for you this week? Nothing's coming to the top of my head, but let me go back and I'll look at my notes if well anyone else might uh, have some things to bring up. Mini, Min yeah, uh, Minos or, or something. It's not just Mini, right, Matt? It's like Minio. That's what it is. Yeah. That's the self-hosted S3 alternative. Mr. Jenkins, do you have any other cool announcements? No, none that I can think of right off the top of my head. Those were the ones that um, were kind of, you know, I didn't even contribute to the hay discussion because I was appreciating all the other thoughts that everybody was given. Um, but yeah, those were the main ones that I was thinking about. I'm, I'm faced with, um, uh, what do I want to say, like considering costs on a, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual basis. So those types of discussions are always uh, interesting to me. Is this part of one of your consulting engagements where you're helping with that? Yeah, just considering like how to keep costs down and um, cut back on anything cloud, basically. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if no other announcements right now, uh, then why don't we jump into Q&A? I, uh, <clears throat> I gave a, a very quick one that they... They announced that you can um, you can now enable uh, systems manager by default on on the organization level, which I thought is pretty cool. Yeah, that one I saw. Hmm. That'll make it easier to enforce policies at an org level. Yeah. Nice. Wonder what that means when somebody deploys a rogue EC2 instance. They're like, why does this have SSM on it? <laughs> At least everyone can connect to it then and figure out why why it's there. Yeah. Multi VPC ENI attachments. Interesting. So you could have your like EKS nodes uh, living in two. VPCs. Hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. 
I wonder if that works. So you could actually use a shared VPC and also a dedicated VPC per account, and then your nodes can have certain networks they communicate on. Yeah, and turn themselves into a target for uh, for permission escalation. It's perfect. <laughs> into the shared. <laughs> I, I saw another one, uh, another announcement, like a little over, I think it was probably before last week, but um, I don't know if we ever mentioned it. Um, I just double clicked. <clears throat> I mean, I just posted uh, the link there, but um, they they have um, created a whole host of um, CloudWatch templates for uh, best practices for setting up alarms across like a million different services, like in the beautiful in in the uh, in the uh, AWS uh, ecosystem. I think there's another. Is there a Git repo with those? Yeah, yeah. I thought. I think I. Is it this one? Hmm. There's definitely a repo because I looked at it. Um, and it was uh, what I thought was interesting, though, is is that when you go to that, um, when you go to that thing, it actually shows you. Um, you can create the the code in CloudFormation, um, CLI, or Terraform. Oh, sweet. Yeah. You know so what we did pretty, for, you... um, remember what we did for all the conformance packs, Matt, so we can mm -hmm. just uh, generate all those automatically. I think that'd be yeah. perfect to just have a module that uh, can translate that. Um, that's so cool. Yeah, but, uh, so... I, I, and, and even the way they write it here looks very similar to how conformance packs are represented on the web, but where are. I think you actually have to go into that. If you go to that link that I posted, um, there's a, there's like a link in the console and then in the console, it actually shows you the um, uh, keep going where it says right there. Um, and then you go to uh, alarm in the metrics thing, you go to alarm recommendations and then it will actually show you when you go to create it, it will give you the IAC basically to create that that recommended alarm, which was pretty cool. So I guess we'd have to do this like one time, like to export all these things. Mm. Yeah. Although these are just CloudWatch alarms. So we can, what we did with compliance um, when the documentation was written just like that, um, we scraped, <clears throat> we used the, wrote a web, web scraper to scrape the documentation and actually like pull out all those parameters. Yeah. And create them like into a catalog, basically. That's how we originally did it. That's the problem with AWS having 27 different GitHub organizations. Good luck finding anything. <laughs> That's actually a good question. I'll turn, I'll open this up. One of the things that I'm, uh, or we're considering at Cloud Posse is how to improve discoverability. And when you start having hundreds, 
you know, thousands of repositories. Um, that's difficult. Uh, GitHub is pretty adamant about not supporting hierarchical uh, repo structures the way GitLab and I believe Bitbuckets uh, does support, um, even though it's been requested, you know, since almost inception. One of the patterns that's coming a lot more common is like you have AWS IA um, as a uh, GitHub um, organization. Uh, then they have um, you know AWS SAM Terraform templates, and they have controllers, and they have actions. So they have all of these different organizations. Um, today I saw somebody was sharing uh, Zalando uh, Incubate incubator another uh pattern uh having a separate org for all you know if you have a lot of skunk work projects that you know not not necessarily gonna receive uh, long-term support stash them there uh, what's everyone else's thoughts on this do you work for an organization that does this um would this does do you have any opinion does this turn you off or you know do you like it Or no opinion. Uh, sir, are you referring to the uh, organization name, like how they're yeah. doing? Yeah, yeah, what they're doing up here. Yeah, on my team, we were thinking about doing that as well. Um, we saw, I think you've highlighted it multiple times from AWS, mm -hmm. and it seems like a pretty cool way to kind of separate things because that's been one frustration I've had with GitHub. You could use GitHub topics to do it, but doing it at an org level seems nice. The one caveat is. How do you discover all the different orgs that your org has? <laughs> so um, I, I think there's some trade-offs with it, but uh, the, the approach that we're thinking about taking was creating a separate org, like for Helm charts that we use, just having like a Helm chart org and then uh, dumping all our Helm charts in there and then going back to our main org and just having like a link out to all our different orgs and what they're used for. So this way people create new repos they create in the correct section. Um, the one caveat I ran into recently is I, I started playing around with the idea of the migration is GHCR. If you like move stuff around, GHCR tends to break. So GHCR. Uh, the GitHub container registry. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I've run some weirdness when I've like renamed repos or move things around. It, it just seems to uh, just break entirely. <laughs> so I haven't gotten to the bottom of the proper way to move things around, but uh, personally, I'm a huge fan. I I just, um, uh, like, for example, in the AWS, I don't know if they have, like, a parent page that says... Oh, so that's what I was going here. I was going to see, see, and this is what you do. But they do nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's also, I think, like, a GitHub profile page. You, yeah, you so I think this is here. what they yeah. should do, is yeah. that when you go there, it would show, go here, go here, go here, and then you uh, then each one of those organizations has their own... Uh, org page that describes the organization. Yeah, I think the other thing is you could also have like, uh, depending on the size of your team and company, if you were to take this multi-org approach, you could easily have org admins. Um, yeah. Versus, and, and, teams yeah. And, and so forth. And then, uh, yeah, I feel like that would help reduce friction on onboarding and just permissions management and stuff like that. But um, yeah. Also, I was wondering if like the free orgs are good enough for a lot of the things one want to do, but then it looks like, you know, stuff that I've just taken for granted forever 
um, like code owners, does that mean you don't have code owner support in a free team, even for open source repositories? Um, uh, I think that's me. correct. Hmm. Uh, yeah, the, um, for me, um, the enterprise pricing is, is like, this is probably the best deal out of everything that we pay for, <laughs> especially for the amount of time that I'm in GitHub uh, for 19 bucks a user. Um, Are you using enterprise? Yeah, yeah, we're on enterprise. And um, it's, yeah, I, I feel like the price point is really solid um, for everything that we're getting. Um, and obviously we're using a lot of, a lot of our repos are public, similar to you folks. So we don't face a lot of the, the, the charges that you might incur if everything is private. So I, I can't speak to yeah. the, the real enterprise burn there, but I imagine if you, if you have to do everything private, you might be using self-hosted runners, things like that, which would also help bring down the costs. All right. Another question then for everybody. Um, so like one of the challenges uh, with an with an as an open source company is working with contributors and the tooling around that. Um, Google's obviously good at this, and um, they've built a lot of their automation tools around bots that can do approvals, bots that do merges, bots that do everything. So you don't need to add users to your organization itself. Um, and Cloud Posse, we've just been footing the bill, adding contributors to our uh, GitHub organization with restricted permissions. And hey, it's easy. But then we got to pay for that. Either way, we got to pay. We got to pay for the engineering to build the tooling to do those things, which is, I guess, a one-off cost and hopefully goes down over time or we pay the uh, recurring co uh, seat cost. What's keeping me away from going to enterprise for sure is, well, our, our team size you know, doubles or triples in size because of contributor seats that I don't want to pay that, uh, that price on. Um, what is the best tooling out there? Is there some good tooling that I should be looking at um, that isn't homegrown the way, like Google created all their homegrown stuff. Great power to them. That's what they should do. I'd prefer to see if like what off the shelf stuff exists for managing open source without adding people. Have you folks, um, uh, so, so uh, more more recently in the past year, as I've done like more open source contributions, I, I've started seeing what the process is. Like if you want to contribute against Grafana Helm chart, they've got their own process or like the Grafana, like binaries, whatever, or Argo CD, whatever it is. There's a lot of different tools that people are using. Um, I'm not a contributor in their org. I just make my PR for my public repo and and I do a fork or whatever, and then PR back in. And it's really, it's been really insightful to see all the different tool chains that people are using and right. kind of automation. And it might take like a day or two to make a contribution to each of those repos or just do a PR and you'll see like all the automation that gets kicked off and how they're managing it. And yeah. um, it's been really cool to see all the different tools. I can't tell you which tool stack to use. Um, everyone's got their own opinion. Some of them keep it up to date. Some of them are really far behind. Um, and that might be, an area to make a quick contribution, especially on some Nicarfana Helm chart stuff that I've seen. But um is that where you've been making your contributions lately and you like the process? Um yeah. So uh we so we've been doing it because we use uh we use like cute Prometheus stack or we use like Argus CD and we find that those upstream helm charts are usually behind. And so yeah. a lot of the contributions have been like, hey, this new release dropped, let's let's just you know try to give back where we can. And so we make that PR and the upstream helm chart to just get the newer version rolled out, whatever that might be. 
and then are they using slash commands to uh yeah yeah argo cd in particular they do uh theirs is pretty cool they maintain a few different release branches so they have like one for two dot they probably have one for so, so like the last i think like the last minor they include so like 2.7 and 2.8 and then now they have 2.9 coming out and if i make a pr or you make a pr against their latest version, they'll merge it in, it'll get merged into main, and then they have you do additional PRs where they'll cherry pick those changes back into those old release branches. So they keep a couple of old release chains, like two versions, I think. And then um, they do like a slash command. I think it's actually a tool from Google that they're using. Mm. And then there's time, yeah, that's it. The GCP cherry pick bot. And for some reason it doesn't always work. So in my case, it did not work. Um, I don't, I don't know why, but, uh, it might've been some merge conflicts that couldn't be auto-resolved. So then I have to do manual PRs against each one. Um, and then, uh, for example, I think on Argo, on Argo CD, all the, all the tests run by default has been my experience on Grafana. They've got like some approval process before your, the CI and everything runs. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the criteria is there, but it might be, uh, I assume it's an extra protection on their end. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so this was on, I was talking about for Google, <laughs> 56,000 commits uh, so far have just gone into their test infra. Uh, oh, another thing uh, you may want to, like another thing I was considering on the enterprise, and I don't know if it violates in terms of service, but the GitHub Terraform provider is pretty solid. So you could probably add people in and pull them out pretty easily. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> managing, we're actually managing, um, so we use the GitHub enterprise and we, we have the Terraform provider managing all the users and everything in there. The only thing you have to do ahead of adding users is making sure you have available seats. Mm -hmm. um, and also, just a quick FOI, um, if you convert your team org into an enterprise, if you are using GitHub packages or if there's like a special, your actions can read and write to the repository, that will be disabled at an org level. And they tell you nothing about it till you dig around on the docs. It just happens by default. There's no notice or warning. And so stuff will just break if you're using that feature. Um, I can point you to it if you do that cutover. Um, it's it's just a simple check. With GitHub Enterprise, um, uh, are you limited in the? Uh, do they do they limit the number of uh, child organizations you can create? Um, I think I asked your support about that. I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Um, deleting orgs is a little tricky. You can't really do that in the Terraform provider easily. So you have to like it'll it'll get removed from the Terraform state, but it actually won't delete the org. You have to actually go in and delete the org. So just keep that in mind if you're doing some, some automation there. Um, yeah, uh, the uh, aside from, yeah, uh, there's there's definitely, if you're not using the GitHub Terraform provider, there, there's definitely a uh, lot of cool features and easy ways to like scale your, how you're managing your org in there. We don't have a public module yet. We've been, Still figuring out the patterns, but um, yeah, it, it, it's it's pretty solid to get the the Terraform provider for GitHub. Cool. What is this? Yeah. The vein of uh, of managing PRs. 
our uh, pull reviews, uh, pull requests. Mm -hmm. The uh, I've I've tried Axolo. Uh, basically, every time a pull request gets opened, it opens a channel in Slack. You can have a custom prefix so it doesn't clutter your channel view. Um, but then you know, based on your code reviewers, it could bring in the right people and. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a number of automations that are, are I think, pretty interesting and worth looking at if you're in this domain. Yeah, I know I was really gung-ho about a similar strategy, like one channel per uh, Jira issue or things like that. Uh, it was not universally popular here, at least. Um, and uh, we gave up on that. But, channel discovery is the hard part, I think, you know, and pulling and, people and and that uh, kind of stuff, also yeah. overload like context switch overload is really hard for sure when you have when you have hundreds of repos and potentially you have you know some percentage of those constantly getting updated with pull requests like trying to stay on top of yeah. all those new channels is really hard yeah absolutely so you know <clears throat> it's I think the automation helps reduce uh, reduce some of the the management toil uh, for for this a little bit, um, but again, I haven't used it in anger, so I've only used it in kind of very very small projects. So it's <laughs> in a it fits in a bigger context. Thanks. I've I've also seen this new tool that I think is really cool. It kind of break it, it's a little mind blowing. Kind of breaks the paradigm, but. I don't know if you've seen graphite, graphite.dev. No, what's that? Um, it's it's this tool that kind of sits on top of GitHub or Git or GitHub in this case um, to basically deal with the problem um, of like uh pull requests uh breaking like you know merge queues and like all of that kind of stuff on top of each other um and you you can you can easily switch contexts with what you're working on um independent of like branches and pull requests and all of those things and it kind of manages it under the hood for you um that all of those things are happening it's uh go you'd have to go like take a look at like the the demo to really grasp like how it works it's hard to explain in one thing but um the only problem with it is is it's like just as expensive as github itself <laughs> so yeah yeah i'm feeling so sassed out these days yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm just for if you're in an enterprise, this might not be as bad. Like you know, yeah, for what you're doing, but um, it's a pretty cool um, set of features. Like if I started a new, so like those stacks are basically like stacks are kind of like something that you're applying things to, and then it um it, it makes sure that like one pull request doesn't break another pull request no matter what order they're merged in kind of thing. And it, and it gates them and <laughs> um, and does all sorts of things for it, um, which is pretty cool. So yeah, really helpful if you are doing multi, uh, PRs across repos to implement functionality. Mm -hmm. and, and also just in a singular repo, like the all the manual work of 
keeping up to date with like with the base branch and head and all that kind of thing it's it's kind yeah. of like magically doing that underneath the hood for you All right, uh, we got about ten more minutes. Uh, any other questions today we can get answered? I do have a quick one. I heard someone mention the Cube Prometheus stack. I'm just curious what people's experiences are with self-hosting a monitoring platform that is made up of that. You know, Prometheus Grafana stack, and it's something whether it's something you'd recommend or not. Uh, I'm curious. So um, I've been running it for a while now, and it offers a lot of the box. Um, they do give you paths to provision your own dashboards and and basically add more to it. Um, the uh, the only drawbacks I've had are uh, occasionally get a bug, and so you, you basically depending on how you're managing your infrastructure and your environments, you'll probably want to test cluster before you do updates. But the reality is, you could also run a very old version for a very long time and not have to deal with updates at all. It just depends on uh, how how far behind you want to be on the upstream. But uh, for the most part, uh, me and my team, we're updating at least once a month. And it's been usually pretty smooth. We, we do a regression at least uh, before we roll it out uh, to our prod environment. But um, it's pretty rare. And a lot of times when stuff breaks, it's just Grafana. Just literally a Grafana update. Can't log in anymore or can't log in twice. It's my favorite. Um, but it's uh, it's been pretty consistent. And you just get a lot of dashboards out of the box. It, you don't have to build anything from scratch. Uh, there might be other solutions out there that do this, but um, I've used Prometheus for years now, so I'm a little biased towards that. Um, but and yeah, and it seems like a lot of the tool chain and everything. Uh, if you're deploying Argo CD, you're deploying literally anything that's popular. There's a good chance there's a service monitor, and that service monitor ties right into Prometheus stack. So just the ecosystem has basically standardized on using using Prometheus and the, the Prometheus operator. So uh, Life should be easier if you stick to that, is my initial impression. You don't necessarily have to use Cube Prometheus stack. You could also hand roll deploying Prometheus operator and all of that. But if you if you deploy with the Helm chart, the popular one, Cube Prometheus stack, you get Grafana, you get Alert Manager, and you get uh, Prometheus. And then they also have some toggles and stuff for Thanos. Uh, so if you're running stuff at scale, that's an option too. Uh, we're not leveraging that yet. We... I mean, if, you're, if you want to have data for more than like a month, uh, you're going to have to look into other solutions. And the, the other issue we would run into is um, like the whole reason you need it is, well, okay, to catch when things go wrong, but when things go wrong, to use it and look at it. And uh, er, back in the day, I, this is like four years ago now on Kubernetes and using it, like we were many times where, you know, the cluster was hosed and so was there for Prometheus and we couldn't uh, figure out what was going on uh, without dropping to shell and just doing what we had to do anyways with kubectl. So I kind of like the idea of trying to get that stuff off the server. Um, have, yeah. you, have you integrated that with, um, Matt Calhoun was just explaining to me today kind of how if even if you use uh, the uh, AWS managed Prometheus, you still need to run kube Prometheus on your uh the cluster and then um, federate it with the, the managed offering. Uh, Matt, was that right? It's like an external writer, basically yeah. like the, like you still have to run Kubernetes to do the scraping locally from the, from the metric server. And then it, 
it will then like send it to the managed Kubernetes basically upstream. Yeah, and that's a really good point on the resource utilization. Like if your cluster is hosed, you can't view your metrics. Uh, we ran into that issue and similar to load testing, we were able to hose it with, with some, we, I ran JMeter, took down my own cluster and obviously non-prod environment. But after that, we uh, our attempt to uh, protect ourselves is to run this on a dedicated node pool. So we've set up a dedicated node pool just for all the Prometheus, um, all, all of the, what we call our control plane services. And that's that- seems to be working so far. Um, I imagine there will be a time after an upgrade or something where that backfires, but uh, hopefully by then we've got we've got some of that external federation set up as you've just mentioned the AWS offers. Um, and then also Loki is another cool tool to look at. I personally like open search more, but Loki was pretty easy to deploy and it seems like people are headed in that direction. So you may want to factor that in as you're deploying cute Prometheus stack. Loki and Promptail. Um, and those are also, also one more thing to add uh, for what it's worth. Prometheus is pretty stable. Grafana, Promptail, Loki, they're all like fast moving projects. So um, if you're, so when you're using this stuff, just keep that in mind, there's, it's a fast moving project. Um, so you might be on version 10. I think they just recently, they, they're actively working on 10.2.1 for Grafana. And then in a month from now, you're gonna have like 10.3. And then if you, you might think it's a safe upgrade and then everything kind of breaks. <laughs> so um, yeah, so just keep that in mind. If, uh, if you have Datadog or another hosted SaaS solution, that that may not be a, a bad option either. I haven't deployed that in Kubernetes, of course. Uh, that's good to know. Um, I use Datadog currently, but anyone who's used them knows that their pricing quickly gets out of hand. Now, the question is like, as my engineering time and the time of my team to maintain a self-hosted monitoring stack. Is that really cheaper? Who knows? But there's DHS says DHH says so. <laughs> there's a big push to to get that stack in my org. And so I'm just exploring it. I had a quick like specific question about I was looking at it and there's a couple of helm charts, like one from like Bit Bitnami, there's one from the from the community. Do you know which specific one you use? Uh, yeah, I'm using the one from the community, and I could link that in the Office Hours channel. Um, I the only Bitnami Helm chart we're using right now, I think, is external DNS. So everything else, I, I um, like all the popular tool chain. So the one from Prometheus Community is the one I'm using. Okay, good to know. And thanks for all the other tips. I'll probably have to listen to this uh, recording again. Oh, no worries. Find it on YouTube. <laughs> All right. Well, we have uh, another five minutes. If there's another quick question we can get to. Totally open. I just had a quick question around um, is if, if there's anyone out there is using. ALBs with um, Istio ingresses, and if you have been, what sort of issues have you come up with and how have you solved them? It's just an exploratory question. Yeah, we are not doing it at Cloud Posse. Talking with That's one cool. customer Thank to you. get them off Istio back onto native Kubernetes networking and services. 
what was the reasoning behind that? Really interested. Um, well, I guess it depends on when you jumped on the rails with Istio, but uh, they did about three years ago and the upgrade paths haven't all been smooth. Uh, plus the core team that set it up isn't the core team that's there anymore and isn't really comfortable with how that works. So when things go wrong, they have uh, trouble understanding um, all of that. Uh, we at Cloud Posse don't deploy service meshes as part of the solution because the same kind of customer that comes to us, I don't believe is the same kind of customer that has the internal operational readiness to handle that additional layer of abstraction on top of Kubernetes and the networking. And like, so I, I kind of feel like crawl, crawl, walk, run, and uh, how far can you get with native networking before uh, the mesh-like uh, capabilities are a true requirement versus a nice to have. Um, some of the things uh, that you know it offers, I mean, there's so many things you can do with uh, the mesh that you can't do just with native networking, but the most common things is like um, uh, MTLS between the services or um, uh, restricting you know who can talk to what. And now with pod security groups, um, you can just do that very easily to restrict uh, which services can uh, talk to which services. Also, Kubernetes uh, EKS, if you're on AWS, which is what we specialize on, now supports uh, uh, network security policies. So that's another way to limit it. The sidecar pattern is so freaking easy to just have an Nginx sidecar there and then use cert manager for self-signed certs and uh, use that so you can ensure there's some uh, level of end-to-end -end encryption. Um, what you're losing is uh, that some of the telemetry uh, that you would get with Jaeger to see, um, you know, flow patterns. Um, what else are you using it for? Um, so we've been we're going down the st um, state ramp and feed ramp patterns. And one of the things that's been given to us is effectively encryption everywhere. Yeah. Um, the, the normal stuff that you're talking about with um, controls, ACLs, those sorts of things, you even know you can do with that with the existing stuff that's in there. But most of this is driven around encryption and controlling access to things, specifically data and transit. So that's really the main reason for looking at it. So therefore, I'm it's not really interested. Necessarily. I mean, so therefore, using self-signed certs uh, with cert, cert manager, you can ensure uh, ensure that. Yeah, your services only listen to um, uh, local host. And the only thing that is exposed is the sidecar that exposes the TLS endpoint. What were you saying? I cut you off. Oh, no, that, yeah, I basically agree with you. I'm just trying to work out how... Do we even need to do this? Is there other patterns I can explore to get there? It, it hurts that you just don't get automatic uh, encryption within a VPC on AWS yet to this day. Um, one of There's one other thing you can sort of leverage for the checkbox purpose, at least. Um, are you on AWS? Is that what this is? Where yes. you're operating? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So... Yep. Um, if you use any of the Nitro instances, um, all intra-region, uh, uh, I believe, traffic is automatically ensured to be uh, TLS encrypted. But that doesn't. But the second you go over a VPC pairing connection or something else, uh, that mm. that promise is not there. 
and it doesn't translate to the RDS database, for example. Um, but and RDS has TLS. So. Yeah, and pod to pod is not encrypted by that in inside the cluster itself. That's only when yeah, it leaves do. when it goes node to node. Node to node, true. Yeah. Yeah, not pod to pod. Intra node, then you're saying. Yeah. Correct. Like if you're if one service is talking to another service that is physically on the same node, that traffic is in plain text. And the the argument there is if someone can introduce some sort of sniffing technology, they could then they could then basically intercept PII, PHI, dot dot dot, whatever the the thing is that we're whichever standard we're uh, we care about trying to protect against in this case. I haven't heard that argument. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, it looks like we made it to the end of the hour here. I'm going to be mindful of everyone's calendar. Thank you so much for joining us today on Office Hours. We're going to have another session next week, same time, same place. Uh, you can find the recording of today's session in a few hours by going to youtube.com slash cloudposse, where we'll post a recording of this session and also syndicate it to our podcast at podcast.cloudposse.com so you can catch up on back episodes however you lis listen to podcasts. If you're uh, curious about uh, what we do here at Cloud Posse and if we can move the needle for you at your organization, go to cloudposse.com slash quiz, answer a few quick questions, and we'll see if uh, we can help you out. Other than that, uh, newsletter.cloudposse.com. Uh, we have a weekly newsletter, all these cool links and uh, things we come across, we uh, try to share there as often as we can. And uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, go to linkedin.com slash in slash Osterman, and I'll uh, connect with you. Take care, all. See you.